You're listening to That's Pretty Dark. The podcast where we talk about all of the entertainment that scared us as children and still haunts us as adults. So grab your flashlight and join us as we take a frightfully nostalgic look over our shoulders and under our beds and in our closets. And together we'll realize, whoa, that's pretty that's dark. That's pretty dark. Yeah, self-applause. Feeling good. We're doing great. We're great at this. Uh, we're good we're podcasters. So, we're so good at this. Oh my God, it's unreal it's how ama- good we are. The orators that we are. It's like, why have we done anything else with our lives? <laughs> why did we ever oh, even attempt? Let me just turn up my jocularity to level, jocularity. level 13. It's mm. a good word. <laughs> jocularity do you know what else is a good word not in the literal sense but in the like imparting wisdom sense no no what is it (laughs) i feel like you're so confused as you should be okay so as you know i have like ocd anxiety type stuff adhd i have racing thoughts right the whole world knows that you have this the whole world knows this and i'm okay with that please continue but do you know what i learned this week what so i'm not sure where i saw it it was somewhere on the internet but they said One of the best ways to cure, like, racing thoughts or anxiety when you feel that, like, ramping up. this Listener, it's going to change your life. (laughs) You've come to the right place. (laughs) (laughs) When you're in one of those spells, all you have to do is mentally, in your brain, ask yourself, what is my next thought going to be? What? Everything crashes to a halt. There is no more racing because you can't predict what your next actual, like, thought will be. What kind of magic is this? Did you, did it happen to you? No. Okay. Because I was too busy thinking about. What would happen? I thought you were going to say something like when you're, you know, in front of a crowd, picture them all in their underwear. Oh, I mean, it's kind of like that. It's a hack like that because. You're picturing all of your future thoughts in their underwear? Yes. That's what I'm getting at. Because then you realize you can't visualize all of your future thoughts in their underwear because you can't visualize your future thoughts. Exactly. Ding, ding, ding. You got it. I got it. (laughs) But I'm just saying. Finally. I don't think my brain has ever sounded quiet, ever. No, me neither. Until I did that to myself. I've always described my thoughts as like a tornado. Yeah. Mine are like fireworks. I've never had just very simple, basic. Me neither. Like thought structure. And so, yeah, if, if you struggle with that, like we do. Fun, fun tip, hmm. just to kick us off. It, it, it changed my week. I will say, because when I started to do that, my week has changed. I had a solution. I had a way to quiet the thoughts. I needed this advice this week because, man, let me tell you, this has been a hard week. I love that you've needed the advice this week, and I purposefully didn't say it to you because I was mm-hmm. waiting to say it to you when we started yeah. to record. <laughs> Thanks for nothing. <laughs> it's been a long week. Yeah. I've had a lot to do. I've had a lot of really big boy conversations with other big yeah. boys. You're playing with the big boys now. Yeah. As they say in The Prince of Egypt. I have not. Well, okay. I've enjoyed myself, but I have not enjoyed myself. I much prefer the simplicity of like a Saturday morning <laughs> cartoon binge session. Don't we all? And That's you know what? way better. That is what brings us here together today. But I've been looking forward to this all week. It's good to be back in the pocket. That's right. And you know what the best part is about this weekend? What's the best part about this weekend? Neither of us are locked inside of a really large house with a ghoulish skeleton monster. Well, speak for yourself, first of all. <laughs> what do you have going <laughs> no, on? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the only ghoulish skeleton monster in my house is me, so <laughs> nothing to fear here, guys. So your cats could have written this book that we're about to discuss. Pretty much. Wow. <laughs> 
before we get too much further into this, I'm Christian. Oh, I'm Galen, if you care. And you're listening to That's Pretty Dark. You are? <laughs> That's pretty dark. <laughs> if you didn't mean to be, you know, this is your cue. Yeah, you just found your way here. Welcome to our very strange corner of the uh, internet uh, world. Tonight, we are talking about a book. This is our second book report. The first was our Green Ribbons. Uh, was it a series? It was yeah, a series, Yeah, it was right? a series. Go back and listen to that shit. Yeah, it was it good. Got, it got it was wild. Fun. I was wine drunk on uh, French wine from Bordeaux the whole time. It was awesome. Guillotine. Tonight, we are discussing The Skeleton Man by Joseph Bruchak. And this is a gem brought to us by our graphic designer. Yes. Paige Garland. That's right. This was recommended to us by her. It was one of the first things recommended to us, actually. Yep. I'm surprised it took us this long to get here. It's so true. But she said there's a copy on a shelf in her mother's classroom. So she's a teacher. Yes. And she said this book has gained a bit of infamy amongst her students. That's so crazy. I When I was looking up my synopsis, this will be my you know intro to it with you guys because Christian's going to tell us all, all about it. I've never read it. A little bit. But about. when I looked up the synopsis, the ones that I found were a lot of them were on Scholastic websites. Yeah. So I was like, this is a Scholastic book fair book. Oh, absolutely. And I'm shocked that I never came across this. I read it recently, but I did not read it when I was a kid. I don't know how. I don't know why. But it would have scared the pants off of me yeah. if I'd been young. But yeah, no, this book is incredible. I'm very pleased that it exists in the world. First, I want to say, Kaylin, this book has nothing to do with the Skeleton Man action horror thriller film Okay. that released on the Sci-Fi Channel in 2004. Well, I'm really glad you told me that. That movie is apparently on Netflix and it's supposed to be really terrible. <laughs> so The way you started that, I thought you were going to say really good. And I was like, oh, maybe we should watch that too. But mm, okay. we should. But just to make fun of it the whole time. Gotcha. I also want you to know, Kaylin, if you're paying attention, I want you to know. I'm paying attention. What else would I be doing right now? This book also has nothing to do with the crime fiction novel also named Skeleton Man. Okay, because I saw that too. Published in 2004. Yeah. Written by novelist Tony Hillary. I saw that as well. So thank you. It has nothing to do with either of those things. So don't even bring that over here. Okay. I won't. It doesn't belong here. It doesn't belong here. It's a creep. It's a weirdo. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> this book, The Skeleton Man, is an eerie children's suspense novel published on September 1st, 2001, mm. which is perfect because September 1st is when I begin my autumn slash Halloween season festivities. Oh, yeah. It was definitely published to get in there for Halloween. Yeah. The year it came out, it was like primed and ready for the Halloween season. Just like Are You Afraid of the Dark came out in like August. Yes. They were like, okay, let's get people ready for the season. There are no other holidays, you know, between the two. Right. It's the next major one. <laughs> Absolutely. You're right. You're right about that. <laughs> this book fits in the middle grade fiction category, meaning it's perfect for young readers between the ages of eight and 12. Mm -hmm. But the back of this book says for ages 10 and up. Oh, whoops. So eight, <laughs> nine-year-olds, get out of here. You can't read this yeah. book. Yeah. I mean, when I was nine, I totally would have read it. I would have read it. I'm telling you. I was reading the college level me. when I was nine, so oh, well, I would have definitely yeah, yeah. picked it up. You and my classmate, Joey. Mm, me and Joey. I bet you guys both had the AR reader like top. He that had was top me. scores yeah. in my class. Me too. Yeah, you would. <laughs> Valedictorian nerd. That's me. The Skeleton <laughs> Man story follows a young girl named Molly who narrates her own harrowing tale in the present tense. She often walks us through moments beat for beat, providing ample opportunity for some delightfully suspenseful moments, which allows us to sneak and hold our breath 
and even hide right alongside her. This creepy novel may not have received the praise and fame it still deserves, but anyone who reads it, child, adult, or otherwise, would be lying if they said it didn't give them the spooks at times. Mm. I'm ready. I'm ready to get spooked. And I will say, I've never been able to really nail down the exact description of the feeling. Like, I want to invent a new word to describe (laughs) that. Like, I want to get creeped out. But this book gave me that feeling. I'm pretty sure there is, yeah. I don't know if there is. I've tried to find it. Let us know, listener. Let us know, listener. Tell us what you think it should be. Somebody who's like studies linguistics needs to like go back and find the roots of words and piece together a new word. Etymology. But yeah, it gave me that feeling, that creepy feeling that told me this would have scared me so bad as a kid if I'd read it. Wow. Probably in a in a good way. I don't know. There's a lot of positive to this story too. But one review I did read of this said that this book is, quote, a natural for under-the-blanket reading. <laughs> I like that. Which I feel like kind of wraps up that whole frightfully nostalgic feeling in a, in a statement. I really like that. But before we get into the story itself, we need to give credit where the credit is due. The Skeleton Man, this children's novel, was written by Joseph Bruchak. It's a Slovak family name, but he's considered a Native American writer mm. because he's of Abenaki descent. Okay. The Abenakis are indigenous peoples of the northeastern woodlands. So like Maine yeah. area. Okay. He is a critically acclaimed author of more than 120 books. Wow. And many of his writings draw on his Abenaki heritage. Uh, the Skeleton Man novel itself is based on a traditional Abenaki story, although Molly, the main character, indicates that she and her dad and possibly even her mother are of Mohawk heritage. Mm-hmm. The characters Molly and her family live in upstate New York. Okay. Mohawk is from kind of the New York okay. area. So is he not from there? He's from New York, but okay. his heritage is from more the main area, gotcha. the Abenakis. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I think I was like, why didn't he just Yeah, I was wondering why he wouldn't Abenaki. just make it his own tribe. Yeah, why not make Molly and her family Abenaki? But Maybe also Mohawk is more like well-known. Maybe that was a suggestion from like an editor or something. Or maybe it's just that he knows the terrain mm-hmm. in New York better. I don't know. I don't know. But if we have him on and we <laughs> interview him uh, for something like Patreon or something, we can ask him. That'd be great. You know? I'd love to. So I actually, I have a recording from Bruchak. It's not my recording. <laughs> it's from a, a website I found because I was trying to figure out how to pronounce his name. It's Bruchak. Bruchak. I wanted to make sure I, I said it correctly. And I found a website that actually has a bunch of different writers. It's called teachingbooks.net. And different writers have little audio files that teach you how to pronounce their name. <laughs> so, so handy. And I'm going to play it for you. Okay. Hello, my name is Joseph Bruchak. That's Bruchak, as in boiling up a small building. And although I'm known as a Native American writer, that is my ancestry on my mom's side, my dad's side is Slovak. So in fact, if it were pronounced in Slovak, it would be Bruchac. Bruchak, I might mention, probably has two different translations into English. One is a bear growling, the other is Big Billy. Once again, this is Joseph Bruchak, and I wish you a good day. As in boiling a small building. <laughs> yeah, isn't that cool? I like you, dude. <laughs> He's funny. He's funny. I'll get into this later, but he, he does speak a lot to groups of children. Mm-hmm. Like he, he's a very educational speaker. He can be hired for events and such. He sounds like such. that. He could sit and do circle time I mean, and it'd be fun. Yeah. He's just good at that. He's good at, at communicating. I don't want to say it's because he's a writer because uh, writers are just good at writing. Doesn't mean they're good at communicating. True. But he's a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Very cool guy. I've liked everything that I found about him. We'll have to read some more of his books. Absolutely. Oh, 
which ones? <laughs> Over 120 to choose from. Right. So he is a storyteller of both the written and spoken word. And he's a poet as well as a musician. Love that. He's received numerous awards and honors throughout his career. Like this list is, is long. I didn't even I didn't even write them down. It's a ton of stuff. Brew Shack. <laughs> One quote from his website is Although his Northeastern American Indian heritage is only one part of an ethnic background, those native roots are the ones by which he has been most nourished. Ah. Which I liked that phrase. Yeah, me too. Because we're all made up of different things, but to be nourished by one part of your ancestry more than the other, yeah. that's just such a beautiful way to put that. That is. I like that a lot. That was really nice. And his website also says that he has performed all over the world as a professional storyteller of native stories, and he visits dozens of schools every year as a visiting author, telling stories and discussing native culture. That's awesome. Which is very important to him. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. It also says he, his younger sister, Margaret, and his two grown sons, James and Jesse, <laughs> continue to work extensively in projects involving the preservation of Abenaki culture, language, and traditional native skills including performing traditional and contemporary Abenaki music mm -hmm. with the Dawnland Singers. Cool. I'm definitely going to look them up. <laughs> right? And Dawnland is cool because um, the Abenaki, another name for them in like English translations, is people of the Dawnland. Hmm. So the Dawnland Singers is Dawn. like, it's just drawing, everything he does just draws back on his heritage over and over. It's super cool. I'm excited because that means that this book probably does a lot of the same. It really does. Exactly. He's also one of the founders of the Wordcraft Circle of Native American Writers and Storytellers, which has helped numerous Native authors get their work published. Amazing. Incredibly important work. Love that. Because that, that is a voice that has been stifled over and over and over again. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Bruchak. Yes. Thank you, Joseph Bruchak. You're incredible. So Joseph Bruchak has kept the Native American tradition of storytelling alive and well. And he's done his part to ensure that it will continue for at least another generation, at least one more. But if enough people continue to read his works, there's a good chance he'll have a hand in continuing the tradition for many generations to come. Which brings us to Skeleton Man, like you said. Mm -hmm. This story is not only inspired by a generation's old story in reality, but it also celebrates the telling of stories and the passing on of old world knowledge and insights. Because it's Molly's understanding of the ancient monster that is the Skeleton Man that ultimately saves her life. Wow. What do we keep saying here? That history repeats itself? Yeah. That those <laughs> who don't know history theme. are doomed to repeat it? Yeah. Right. I also do want to briefly say uh, that the illustrations in the story, in this book, are done by Sally Wern Comport, uh, who is a very talented artist and author of a few of her own books. Man, yeah. I'm jealous. She can't illustrate and write. <laughs> yeah, way too <laughs> That's cool. not fair. <laughs> the illustrations in Skeleton Man are unsettling, beautiful, and just the right kind of dark. I can't wait for you to lend it to me upon completion <laughs> of this recording. <laughs> yeah, I got it. It's all yours. So I have the book here with me. You do. I see I it. Do. It's right here. I see it right there. And I'm going to read some some bits from the book, but not nothing too crazy. Don't turn this off. <laughs> keep listening. No, they'll keep listening. They like your voice. No, they don't. No, no. <laughs> so you know how like on the, on the inside cover of books, it's all the copyright information. Like this is a work of fiction. And it like gives you the categories of fiction that it fits inside of. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. But I really, I've, I mean, maybe, maybe in these types of books. When I it'll was either younger. say fiction, nonfiction. Oh, it yeah, tells yeah, you yeah. whatever gotcha. it is. Then yes. This book under fiction, the first two categories, it says psychopaths and kidnapping. Oh my God. 
And this is for ages 10 and up. <laughs> or I'm probably going to say that over 10. and over. It's for ages 10. Oh my God. The copyright summary is after her parents disappear and she is turned over to the care of a strange great uncle, Molly must rely on her dreams about an old Mohawk story for her safety and maybe even her life. Oh. Right? Super spooky. I think that's the, one of the synopses that I read online. It's got to be. Yeah. So I also wanted to take a moment to read the acknowledgments page because it's super important okay. uh, for the story and for a lot of the things that we discuss here on the podcast as a whole. Yeah, I feel like, you know, we, we keep adding people to our roster yeah. of like the greatest thinkers and like creators for uh, children in the horror genre, mm-hmm. which, you know, this is a suspense novel because they don't want to market a horror novel for right. children, but sure. suspense is much more fitting. But it has a psychopath and kidnapping. This is a horror novel, guys. Don't be <laughs> mistaken. All right. This is what Joseph Bruchak has to say. I'm going to mispronounce these names and I apologize. He says, I could not have written this book without the many lessons I've been taught by such tradition bearers as the late Alice Shenandoah Papineau Duastinta, mm-hmm. Grandmother Doris Minkler, and my great friend Gail Ross. Mm. They have helped me understand even more deeply how different the strong women in our traditional American Indian stories are from the dependent damsels of European folktales who hope for a prince to rescue them. Not only do our Native American heroines take care of their own rescues, they often save the men too. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And so that's like the main theme behind the story is that just because you're female doesn't mean you need to be rescued. Yeah, that is a fact. I'm here to tell you I have lived this in my life. It is true. And something else very interesting that I'll chime in here with yeah. is that in my research, I've been researching for an episode on Fern Gully. Yeah, <laughs> and that's coming up next. Yeah, and I really, I wanted to dig into some of the like Aboriginal stuff and I didn't get to do as much of it as I wanted to. But there are a lot of societies. I started researching matriarchal societies. You know, where where are these or how many of them are there? Because I know they existed. And funny enough, the Mohawks Mm -hmm. were listed in some of the things that I read about as being more matriarchal and like respecting women more. I've read that too recently. Than other cultures. So and I just came across that this week. That may be also why he made this family Mohawk. Maybe so. Yeah. Because she's clearly, Molly's clearly going to be a matriarch of her family one day. Amazing. Yeah. So to dive into the book a little bit and set you up for all the spooky goodness. Okay. The first page, she's already living in the home with the uncle. Mm. So as she catches us up to speed on what's happening, uh, she tells us that how she got here. (laughs) You're probably wondering how I got here. (laughs) (laughs) She was home. It was a Saturday night. Her parents went out. We don't know where. To dinner. Whatever. But she's big enough to stay home alone. I think she's in sixth grade. So she's in like, she's like 11. Yeah. So her parents go out and they never came home. So she stayed up as late as she could waiting on them. Mm. And then she fell asleep and didn't know they hadn't come home until she woke up Sunday morning. Um, She specifically goes into, my dad wasn't making breakfast. My mom wasn't doing her aerobics. That would have bothered me. You know that would have bothered me. I thought about you while reading this book. Yeah. So much because we discussed this in so many episodes so far. We talked about it last episode. We did. Molly goes into this gut-wrenching summary of how she spent her few days alone, how she tried to make breakfast in the hopes that her parents would walk through the door, Mm. find her making breakfast, um, which I get that like 
<clears throat> that OCD kind of complex of like, yeah. if I do things like normal. Like we're going to just keep going. Yeah. I, I had OCD tendencies when I was a kid. Because yeah. if I didn't do the exact same thing every day after lunch at school, my mom would die on the way to pick me up from school. Yes. That's the kind of OCD I also had as a kid. She slept as much as she could. She watched TV. She ate whatever was around. She ordered takeout pizza, <laughs> had a pizza delivered, basic things, but she never called anyone to help. Like she never called anyone and said, Hey, my parents didn't come home. Mm -hmm. She kept thinking they were going to come home. She was convinced, but they never did. Man. It's, it's really, it was difficult. I was like, man, I would have yeah, been Yeah. I think that would have mess messed me up if I, if I had read it, you know, at 11, I think that would have messed me up mm -hmm. for sure. For sure. Would have fueled that that fear. Mm -hmm. But she believed if she were to talk to anyone about it, like her teacher or call the police or whatever, then it would mean something was wrong. So she was operating under the common denial that if you avoid the problem, there isn't one. Mm -hmm. And confronting the problem would make it real. Right. I do get the impulse to do that. I wouldn't have at that age. I mean, I wouldn't have done that at that age. I would have been calling the police. I would have been calling. I would have too. <laughs> I would have too. Every authority figure. But we'll find there's a reason for her instincts. Her instincts are important. It's more of a spiritual connection to what's really happening. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with her heritage. Okay. She even missed school on Monday. I was going to ask, did she go to school? Well, she did on Tuesday, <laughs> but didn't go Monday. Okay. And like both of her parents' bosses called her asking her where they were. Wow. And she's like, they're, they're sick. And she kind of says that uh, somebody had to figure it out. When she goes to school on Tuesday, she turns in a note and she signed it in her mom's signature. To like tell the office like, oh, I was out yesterday because I was, right. you know, I was sick. She's like taking the adult approach to this. It's really, really kind of crazy. The links she goes to to pretend like everything's normal. Nothing's wrong. I'm just like, <laughs> I would not have had the wherewithal. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm imagining me at 11 years old and that did not exist in my body. No, there are, there are moments of really, it's not even really maturity, but it's just very harsh and realistic in this book. Like you have the whimsical kind of horror, but you go from that to like reality mm -hmm. of how things do actually work. So it gets very, it gets very serious and very real at times. She even says that uh, her teacher, Miss Shabbos, seemed to notice that something was wrong. And Miss Shabbos is a uh, very important character mm -hmm. in this story. Teachers are important. Very important. Take note. Very important. But after about four days being on her own, people began to notice. So police showed up news reporters, social services, and she says she was even on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Oh, geez. Which, <laughs> I don't know how there was time for her to be interviewed for that. Yeah. Uh, for that show. But he's just kind of throwing, like, culture references at it mm. in hopes that kids are like, I know that. Man. Wow, that's serious. Unsolved Mysteries? Wow. No, I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't be able to do that. <laughs> I wouldn't be consolable. Mm -mm. I wouldn't be able to be interviewed on Unsolved Mysteries. There would be none of that. Well, it's funny because she says, like, if you watch it, it looks like I'm emotional and crying, but I wasn't. Weird. I can I can also understand the overwhelm. Yeah. Like, it's just a point of complete overwhelm. And when you're that convinced that your parents are just, they're just not home yet. Mm -hmm. They're coming home. See, I didn't have that either, though, because my mom was five minutes late to pick me up from school. I was convinced that the worst had happened. Oh, so no. I didn't I didn't have that. I can't tell you how many sleepovers I went home from. Oh, me too, dude. Supposed to be at my friend's house all night. <laughs> me I just, too. I can't do it. I get me too. homesick. I think my parents are dead. Oh, yeah. Mm -mm. Call my mom. Yep. Going home. <laughs> Call my mom. It'd be like midnight. They'd answer the phone all mad. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. They're just pissed or, at you. And the worst was having to wake up your friend's parents. Yeah. To like get them to call. You have to convince your friend to go wake up their parents. Yes. 
So they and can call your, your mom. And your friend is mad at you. And your friend's parents are mad at you. Yeah. Everyone's pissed. Yep. I get it. And that doesn't help the anxiety, folks. Hate to break it to you. No. But all of this chaos builds up to the main crux of the matter. If her parents are gone, who is she supposed to live with? Mm-hmm. So when social services gets involved, it's this whole glossing over of how, how the system actually works. Mm-hmm. We're only getting Molly's perspective. All she knows is parents are gone, adults are involved, social services lady introduces her to a strange man. Count Olaf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's a stranger. Stranger danger that she does not know. She does not recognize. He's a stranger who is never given a name, but is referred to as her great uncle, making him her father's uncle. Okay. So her father is his nephew. That's the story. Mm-hmm. So much so that he's able to show Molly the pictures in his wallet, his snakeskin mm. wallet, super cool wallet. <laughs> And Molly notices that the pictures in his wallet are the same pictures that her dad had in his wallet. Huh. Huh. <laughs> I'm immediately no. <laughs> Respectfully, no. Respectfully, where did you put my dad? Disrespectfully, no. <laughs> so this strange man is described as such. A tall, elderly, thin man with stooped shoulders, all dressed in gray. Even his shoes. Hmm. With a face that was so thin, it looked like bone. He didn't look Indian. Though his skin was almost as brown as my dad's, it was as if he dyed himself that color. Ew. His eyes were round and unblinking, like the eyes of an owl. He smiled, and I could see how big his teeth were. Mm. What big teeth you have, <laughs> Grandma. Oh, the better to eat you with. Yowza, right? Until you got to that part, I was going to say, I had great uncles that looked like that. (laughs) Mm -mm. But no, not like like that. Get you every time. Every time. Those chompers. But when Molly has no say in the matter, this stranger takes her back to his home where she has to live with him in his house. No, thanks. And that's where she is Mm -mm. now. Like I said, she introduces the whole story as though she's already in his house. mm. And now she's come full circle Mm -mm. (laughs) telling you how she got here. Right. And now we're here with her in the moment. She's in bed. The room is still too dim, even though she keeps on the bedside lamp and the bathroom light. She's been there for seven nights. And every night it's the same thing. At a certain hour, her so-called uncle will climb the stairs with heavy footfalls, Hmm. then stand outside her bedroom door for a few moments, catching his breath. Ew, don't like that. Before knocking, he will ask if she's all right, and when she says yes, she's going to bed, he will lock the door from the outside. No. With a snick. Mm -mm. Respectfully, no. Not going (laughs) to do this. Not going to be here. Not going to be in this house. Not for me. It's so scary. It's honestly very creepy. Just the idea of being taken care of by a relative. Like when I was younger, the only relatives that I would want to stay with were my dad's parents, my mama and papa. Outside of that, Mm -mm. I would have been creeped out in anybody's house. Sure. But then to know that you're in someone else's house and you don't know where your parents are and you've never met this person. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah. This would have, I wouldn't have been able to read this, I don't think. And you know. (laughs) As a kid. (laughs) Yeah. And you know he has something to do with your parents' disappearance. Yeah, because he has my dad's 
my dad's pictures. The pictures that you've seen so many times because he showed them to you. Yeah. Yeah, no. Mm-mm. She even says there's, uh, I think it's the wedding photo of her parents. There's even the same tear in the corner. Yeah. This is. Like she knows this yeah, guy's bad news, but she cannot. Bears. There are multiple times. I'm going to read one at a point. Where's Mr. Poe, the, the banker guy. And <laughs> you got to tell the adults. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. But I'm, I'm going to read a section at one point where. She's trying to convince the adults of what's going on, but, you know, it's that same classic. She's a kid and they're not going to listen. Like in all of the things that we've read and talk about all the Mm -hmm. time is that adults just completely dismiss children. Absolutely. Too many times. (sighs) I have lots of thoughts about it. Mm. I know. I know. That's why we have a podcast about it. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly. Yeah. But I also wanted to say here, um, the sound of the door locking is a snick, snick, like Saturday night Nick. Snick. Snick. Okay, nice. So every time the locks are turned, it goes snick. <laughs> I keep trying to make the noise. I'm like, snick. snick. I guess that's it. Snick. Yeah. I don't know. But spooky. So as she's waxing on in her stream of consciousness way, she says she is scared. I am too, Molly. She says something is wrong and I don't know if I'll survive this. So immediately, if you're, if you're 10 to 12 years old or whatever, you're hooked. Yeah, that would have easily been one of the scariest things I would have read at the, that time. Oh, absolutely. If I'd read it in 2001, yeah. No, yeah. But present tense writing is very difficult. Like the other most successful novel I can think of is Fight Club. Mm, yeah. Present tense is tough. It's very, very difficult. And for kids, I think it's best suited for children because they're already so tuned into their emotions and like everything is the present. There's really no past and no future when you're that young. It's really all that's happening there right now. There is no future. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I think he made the right <laughs> choice. He could have written this differently, but I think he made the right choice. That was Rent. Sorry. I love how you just like, you take my like singing in stride now as part oh, of the conversation. I'm Whether just you used know to what it, it after what, not. eight years? It's yeah. just, it's <laughs> par for the course. But also. You, you just continue. I'm going to mention Rent later on oh my god okay yeah okay all these things you're just that tapping I like. into we're, ba- we're back in the in the pocket we're back in the pocket like you said. our pockets are full tonight <laughs> boy. oh god all right <laughs> <laughs> back on track so she's also you'll appreciate uh self-deprecating i relate but she says here that she's being melodramatic i'm probably just being melodramatic she says that she has an overactive imagination and she attributes this very i'd say a very enriched imagination. Mm-hmm. She attributes this to the stories her parents have told her over the years. Her dad grew up hearing stories from his aunties on the Mohawk Reserve. But not his great uncle, mysteriously. Mysteriously not his great uncle. Mm. But because of these stories, she says, well, there's a really great one, a really scary one my dad used to tell me. And so she narrates for us the ancient story about a skeleton monster as an example, mm. which I will now read. Let's go. Read to us, please. It's circle time. Circle time. (laughs) One of my favorites was the one about the skeleton monster. He was just a human being at first. A lazy, greedy uncle who hung around the longhouse and let everyone else hunt for him. One day, all alone in the lodge, waiting for the others to come home with food, lazy uncle burned his finger really badly on the fire and stuck it into his mouth to cool it. Ooh, he said as he sucked the cooked flesh. This tastes good. It tasted so good, in fact, 
that he ate all the flesh off of his finger. Please, no. Ah, he said. This is an easy way to get food. But I'm still hungry. So he cooked another finger and another until he had eaten all of his fingers. Ooh, he said. That was good. No. But I'm still hungry. So he cooked his toes and ate them. He cooked his feet and ate them. He cooked his legs and ate them. He cooked his right arm and then his left. He kept on until he had cooked his whole body and eaten it. And all that was left was a skeleton. When he moved, his bones rubbed together. So what I'm gathering is that he doesn't have any pain receptors or nerves. No. Right. They just don't exist. Don't interrupt me. <laughs> ah, he said in a voice that was now just a dry whisper. That was good. But I am still hungry. Mm. I hope that my relatives come home soon. And when his relatives came home, one by one, they found that the lodge was dark, except for the glow of the cooking fire. They could see a shadowy shape beckoning to them from the other side of the fire. They could hear a sound like this. Come in, my relative, Skeleton Man whispered. I have been waiting for you. One by one, all of his relatives came into the lodge. Skeleton Man caught them and ate them all but one. She was his niece, and she had been playing in her favorite spot down by the river that flowed through the gorge. She was late coming home because she had seen a rabbit that had fallen into the river. She had rescued it from drowning and warmed it in her arms until it was able to run away. When the little girl came to the lodge, she was surprised at how quiet it was. She should have heard people talking and laughing, but she didn't hear anything. Something was wrong. Slowly, carefully, she approached the door of the lodge. A strange sound came from the shadows within. Then a dry voice called out to her. My niece, Skeleton Man whispered, come into the lodge. I have been waiting for you. That voice made her skin crawl. Yeah, mine too. Where are my parents, she asked. They are here. They are here, inside, Ew. Skeleton Man whispered. Come in and be with them. No, the girl said, I will not come inside. Ah, Skeleton Man replied in his dry, thin voice. That is all right. I will come out for you. Then, Lazy Uncle, the Skeleton Man, 
walked out of the lodge. His dry bones rubbed together as he walked toward the little girl. The girl began to run, not sure where to go. Skeleton Man would have caught her and eaten her if it hadn't been for that rabbit she'd rescued from the river. It appeared on the path before her. I will help you because you saved me, said the rabbit. Mm -hmm. Follow me. Then the rabbit helped the little girl outwit Skeleton Man. And it kind of fizzles out from there. And it says that the rabbit, you know, showed her how to bring her family back to life and other kinds of things. That's a really smart rabbit. <laughs> it's a really, <laughs> really smart rabbit. Um, <laughs> but that's how the folktale goes. Okay. Um, and essentially, it's all about how this guy made himself into a skeleton monster and basically a cannibal. Okay. And uh, yeah, but it has to do with the rabbit. You scratch my back. I'll save yours from getting <laughs> eaten by your uncle. Save yours from getting scratched to, <laughs> to ribbons by the skeleton man. Mm-hmm. And it's important. The rabbit character is important because the rabbit comes back in the dreams that Molly has. So we'll get to her dreams in a, in a, a little bit. Okay. But the rabbit is a very significant player. Does he have a pocket watch? If only. Is he late for a very important date? Listen, don't bring your European folklore <laughs> bullshit you know into You're this right. beautiful Native American you're story. You're right. I got I to gotta, I gotta put a lid on that. One really beautiful thing I noticed about the structure of the story is it feels like when he began to write it, it was just sort of the first couple chapters, maybe maybe the first few that he wrote, had the idea. And from a writing perspective, as a writer, I feel like he wrote them and then he put it aside and then he came back later when more of it had developed in his mind. Mm-hmm. I obviously can't say that for certain, but it feels that way to me. Like the book overall, you mean? The book as a whole, yeah. because it begins with this whimsical suspenseful, horrifying concept of being locked in a room in a dark, you know, mysterious house with this creepy ass dude. And it feels very intimate because you're in all these moments with her. And while you continue to be in the moments with her, because she's the one telling you what's happening from there, the story seems to like unfold and mature and grow in this really cool way. Um, Almost like as he figured things out, he just like threw new mm-hmm. details and new ideas and he expanded the world from there. Mm-hmm. It, it's hard to kind of... Maybe the present tense has something to, to do with that, like making it feel very s- spontaneous. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. I, th- I mean, that's kind of what I'm getting at is like, I wonder how much of that was intentional from the start and how much of it just sort of bloomed mm-hmm. as he was writing the story further. It's interesting. You also have to think about the fact that it's a young girl that's going through this. So she's maturing through the experience too. That too. And she's your narrator. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it was this intentional just story structure or if it was it was supposed to be metaphorical or symbolic of her growth, her story character arc. That's cool. I mean, that's hard to do. So that's cool. Honestly, that's why like, I went back and made that note last night because I was like, you know, that's a really good, um, not a good point. Talk myself up. I'm like, that's a really good. <laughs> you know, Christian, you just made a really good point in your own notes. <laughs> it, 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 uh, it tripped me up last night. I couldn't go to sleep because I was thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And it just one of those things where I feel like if we were to 
call him up and interview him. Yeah. I could just ask him. Maybe we will one day. <laughs> so I've mentioned the big scary house that she's inside mm-hmm. of. Uh, with the door that locks from the outside. Right. What's the setting? Where are we? What's happening? She's in this very large house called the Dark Cedars Bed and Breakfast. Hmm. And, well, that's what it was before her uncle bought it. Hmm. It's this large house. It's about 100 years old, and it's out in the middle of nowhere. It's far from town, but it is near a place called Three Falls Gorge, and it's all set in New York State. But Three Falls Gorge has to be fictional because I didn't find it in my searching for it on the internet, but I did find a Three Falls Woods. Hmm. So there are three (laughs) falls in these woods, but they're not big enough to be the location we need for Three Falls Gorge. Okay. Gorge needs to be huge. So he he's created this. I think he's created this. We need a massive waterfall. These waterfalls are not very big. But this house is old and empty, but it's set up with a bunch of like really out of place modern technology. Like modern appliances in the kitchen. There's an office with a, she calls it a personal computer. <laughs> in 2001, <laughs> that's what it was. Yeah, 2001. And she says that her uncle spends a lot of time in the office, at the computer. So it's really out of place. It's very like anachronistic seeing these this modern technology in this really old house with this creepy ass dude who really has no place owning like modern technology. Yeah. Because he's like a relic himself. He's right. practically made of bone. And if he did outfit the house with modern technology, it only stands to reason that it's for some like nefarious purpose. Like <laughs> Exactly. Oh, I won't really get into that because that's toward the end of the novel, okay. but you're right. There's a reason. There's <laughs> a reason it. for the further technology. Yeah, yeah. I get into it a, a little bit, but not, you know, all the way. No spoilers here. No spoilers. We don't go all the way. <laughs> well, <laughs> home run. <laughs> so she says the house itself isn't all that spooky. It just feels wrong. Like it's stuffy and it feels like someone's always watching. It's it's I'm isolated. Scared. It's set far back off the road, the yard is unkempt, and there's a shed in the backyard that's locked. What's in the shed? What's in the shed? What's in the shed? Hey, what's in the shed? What's in the shed? What's in the shed? There's a a long staircase that leads up to her room, which of course her uncle climbs every evening Mm. to lock her in. I would be running away. Well, there's a reason she doesn't run away. Uh-oh. And again, it all comes back to her instincts. I'd be looking for that damn rabbit. <laughs> oh, she finds it. Don't worry, mm. she finds it. As you keep trying to say, this story is a lot like other stories. Yes. And I dove into this to figure out what came first. My first thought was that it was a lot like Coraline. Okay, yeah. And I found out this was published before Coraline. So I was very pleased to find that. Yeah. This was 2001. Coraline was published 2002. Wow. So they were being written at the exact same time. Yeah. They're similar in this way because of the large, mysterious house that they both live in, Molly and Coraline, Mm -hmm. with their family, well, so-called family, as well as the monstrous villains that try to entrap and fatten up a young girl for the sole purpose of eating her, and the otherworldly dream sequences that involve talking animals. Mm -hmm. Really Coraline is reminiscent of the skeleton man. Exactly. So when Molly goes to sleep, she has these dreams and there's the rabbit that kind of guides her and leads her. Although the cat from Coraline, it's suggested that the cat is the Beldum's long-standing arch nemesis. 
the rabbit in Skeleton Man is quite literally meant to be something known in many cultures around the world, especially in Native American cultures, as a spirit guide. Mm-hmm. So a quick breakdown on a spirit guide. Love this. Love it. I love it so much. I love Native American culture. I wish, you know, that they'd been treated better. I wish there was more of it. Yeah. <laughs> still still exactly. out there. I wish we hadn't destroyed a lot of it. It got real heavy in my side, but I really just, it pains me how poorly that Native Americans and all indigenous peoples have been treated, Mm -hmm. particularly in North America. Yeah. Well, which is also why I got so pumped researching for this book, because I had no idea. Mm. You don't read Joseph Bruchak and think he's Native American. Right. The name. So I was pumped to find that that he is. Super cool. I had a hint because when I was looking stuff up, I kept seeing different right. legends, origins, story stuff. Sure, sure. So, A spirit guide is a guide or protector, but most commonly an animal of some kind. Mm-hmm. This is where we get the idea such as uh, spirit animals, as well as the Patronus charm I was, from I Harry was Potter. about to say Patronus. It was in, Patronus. Like, in my mouth. Coming out. <laughs> I had a Patronus in my mouth. <laughs> It's usually a reflection of the inner self right? or the inner spirit, a spiritual manifestation of something that is already inside of you. So it represents your own instincts and your own strength, and they often leave story characters with the advice that they must look within themselves to find what they're searching for, mm. which is just a beautiful message that we all need to yes, it is. hear. I want to know what my spirit guide would be. I would. I genuinely wish that I had culture like that to look at and pull from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you want to know something completely unrelated? Absolutely. <laughs> slash related? <laughs> it's unrelated because I don't even want to put it in the same category as like actual spirit guides and, you know, Native American lore. Mm-hmm. But regularly, I I and other people would tell me that my spirit animal was the socially awkward penguin. Do you remember that meme? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I used to, you know, I used to say that the, the socially, socially awkward penguin was my spirit animal. I think you're right. I think this checks out. I think if you were to go up to a reservation, I think the Native <laughs> American peoples there would, would totally <laughs> tell you that you're on to something big. They might. They just might. They'd say, yes, Yes, white woman you are. <laughs> That's probably your stupid ass spirit animal. <laughs> you very English white Go woman. Go away. Yes. <laughs> I'd be like, yes. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Totally. My spirit animal is Nick Miller, as we know. That is, oh, we know that for certain. For a fact. 100%. For a fact. Turtle face. The other main piece of literature in pop culture that you've been trying to reference. <laughs> Desperately, over and over. Is a series of unfortunate events. That's right. Yes. <laughs> because of the parents disappearing and the kids being forced to go live with a creepy old Strange, man claiming to be relative. a distant relative they've never heard of before. Very similar. Yeah. I agree. The first book was published in 1999. Yes. Daniel Handler. Yes. And The Skeleton Man was published in 2001. Right. And let's also not discount the fact that Joseph Bruchak has known this story his entire life. Sure, yeah. No, I I wouldn't so, say that it was overlapping in anything, any way like that at all. It was just reminding me because I grew up with, no, absolutely. you know, Count Olaf and Series of Unfortunate Events. My main point here is that a series of unfortunate events, Skeleton Man and Coraline, were all being written at the same time. Mm-hmm. So the craziest thing to me is the spiritual aspect behind that. 
Yeah. That there must Weird. have been something drifting through the ether at this time. Mm. For these three writers to have caught onto something so similar, each being memorable and successful in their own right. And it, it's just, that kind of thing fascinates me. Yeah, me too. Writers like Neil Gaiman, for example, do talk about the muse and inspiration and how things attach themselves to writers. Like, not so much that writers come up with ideas, mm-hmm. but if... But that the ideas are out there and they find the writer. Exactly. Mm-hmm. If you're listening, if you're paying attention, if you're open to your muse, right, you'll be able to catch it as it flies across the sky. And I mean, I feel that way when I, I write. I feel that way too. If I'm going to, like, I, especially like poetry and stuff, sometimes I'll just have a flash of something and I know that's what I, you know, that's what I needed, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel like it comes from me. <laughs> no, I totally get that. How many times have we talked about story ideas that I've had Yeah, that we've seen on freaking Netflix? Or oh, whatever. yeah. Yep. Mike Flanagan. And you're like, yeah, you'll, I'll, you know, we'll be watching something and I'll text Christian. I'll be like, well, somebody else did it. <laughs> yep. It's unreal. It's pretty wild. So, yeah. Can I postulate one thing really quickly before we get out of this a series of unfortunate events moment? No, go ahead. I posted it a couple of years ago, but I'm interested to know what you think, what listeners think. Are we, as in our generation, you and I, are we depressed because we grew up with a series of unfortunate events? Or were we depressed, therefore, we clung to a series of unfortunate events? Which came first in that, that regard? Did it make us depressed or did it, make, it, did it help us feel understood? <laughs> I don't know. Well, you're, you're saying there's only two options. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I don't <laughs> mean what, to say That's what options, you quite yes. literally call a loaded question. <laughs> It has to be one of these two. It's just interesting to me because I feel like, I I don't know if it caused me to lean into that or if it made me feel seen when I already felt that way. Because a series of unfortunate events, as we know, he's, he, Daniel Handler, Lemony Snicket, he writes in such a way that it's like everything is foreboding, everything is a warning, everything is bad and awful and you shouldn't read it and you, you mustn't do this. And if you really want to, but I should warn you, you know, like it's very (laughs) roundabout, you know, I would say, and I don't know, just did it, did it influence our thinking when we were that age? Cause like you said, it came out in 1999. I think everything influences our thinking. When you're that young, yeah. everything yeah. affects how your brain processes information yeah. and your cognitive development. And there were 13 of those bad boys. <laughs> yeah. But I also would say that there's a level of confirmation bias yeah. in his yep. writing. Totally. That it's confirming a lot of the things that you already feel yep. and believe. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably why it was super popular because it was like pinging all the right towers yeah. in our brain nice. that feels that doubt and that insecurity and that fear of being a kid. Yep. I think he just sort of, Cause it, yeah. you know, yeah. One of my favorite songs at the time was I'm just a kid by simple plan. It was like, woe is me on every turn and every corner. <laughs> and that, that series embodied that. It's tough being a kid. I was not adopted by Count Olaf, but you know, it still felt hard sometimes. It's hard to be a kid. It really is. I don't know that I have an answer. Anyway, continue. <laughs> Go ahead. Just, Speaking just, of, just, you know, my my 3 a.m. thoughts that waft through my brain. Sure, sure. Speaking of kids that had a really hard time who were adopted by really creepy-ass people. Molly. Molly. Molly is independent, intuitive, resourceful, and determined. She believes without a doubt that her parents will come home, which she's braver than I am, and she's way more convinced of that than I am. Same. As a kid. Absolutely. So she goes so far as to lie to her parents' bosses 
so that nobody will think anything is wrong. No, I would have been sobbing on the phone. They would have known. Absolutely. I would have called 911 in a heartbeat. Yeah. She doesn't want to leave her home at first because she thinks that she needs to be there when her parents come home. Mm -hmm. And then later, like you said, you'd be running away. Later, she knows that she cannot run away from her great uncle's home because she feels like the only way she'll be able to get her parents back is if she stays and figures out how her uncle is involved. Fair enough. Fair enough. Touche, Molly. <laughs> Touche, Molly. That'd be a really great, like, movie title. or like a <laughs> Touche, Molly. Title of something. Touche, Molly. But it's like the party drug and not a person. <laughs> <laughs> Undertones of the party drug. Yeah. Molly is loving and loyal and smart. She remembers many things her parents taught her, specifically the stories and the lessons to do with her own heritage and her family history, especially when it comes to paying attention to dreams and trusting them to tell her what she needs to know. Mm. When it comes to her own fears and doubt, Molly is braver than I ever would have or could have been at her age, for sure. She's exactly the kind of character that would have left an impression on me mm-hmm. in like a big way if I'd read this as a kid. And I really wish I had because I think I'd be a better and stronger person because of it, <laughs> uh, in a lot of ways. But she's sarcastic and fun and real. She comes across very genuine to me. Like, I enjoy the way she's written. Uh, I think Joseph Bruchak did a good job. At times, it's very R.L. Stein, mm-hmm. you know, like kind of silly. But even Stein's Goosebumps characters tend to come off a little bit like caricatures of children, uh, not necessarily convincing children voices. Mm-hmm. But Bruchak did a good job. Um, it's really hard as a... Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to write for children. I want to write children's you do. suspense and you children's do. horror, whatever you want to call it as a genre. Mm-hmm. But it's really hard to tap into that childish voice because you're not a kid. You're, you're an adult. Mm-hmm. And I struggle with that regularly because I keep thinking like, how would any kid believe that I'm writing convincingly, especially now? Wow. Like with kids growing up and like having access to things That's true. in ways that they didn't have like in the 90s and the 2000s. How do you write for kids when they're like way smarter than you are? Wow. They can see right through your bullshit. So I'm trying to think through that because I feel like when I was a kid, I didn't, I identified with not an adult perspective necessarily, but I was always a little bit ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that I was ever like, I, I could tell really quickly if it was like pandering and I, you know, patronizing and I didn't like that. Right. So I would prefer to just read as straight as it can be made, you know, from an adult's perspective. Be and treated like an adult. Like, be like treated an like an adult, exactly. Yeah. And that's how I prefer to be spoken to as well. But then, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Generations are different. And then I have a hard time now, like, relating to kids, trying to be like, you know, talk to kids mm-hmm. in an age-appropriate way. Because I, I know that I preferred to just be spoken to as another person. So I do that too, but it's just, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's tough. Yeah. It's interesting because you can't, you can't be what you're not. <laughs> Yeah, totally. But like we laugh at a lot of the dialogue and like, oh, you're afraid of the dark in other movies that we watch because these are adults writing dialogue for children. Very true. <laughs> and it's hard to do. Yep. But Molly is complex. Despite all of her confidence that her parents are going to come home, she is still a victim at times, which I thought was very smart on the uh, part of Joseph Bruchak because she justifies the actions of her captor and explains away certain things. Stockholm syndrome. You could say it's Stockholm syndrome, but I I would say it's almost just basic survival. She knows that he's in control. He's in control and she's 
she's trying to figure out like, how is this okay? How can I make this work? And it's only, it isn't until she realizes that like, nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to get better. Something bad is going to happen if I don't do something. But it takes her time to get there. Mm -hmm. She has to sort of experience the complacent. This is all kind of fine. This is all going to be okay before she realizes that it's not going to be okay. So she has to come to that realization herself. I'm, I'm going to get to that realization quick. <laughs> I feel like I would have too. Yeah. In my life, I just, because, yeah, I mean, she's more mature than I would have been in just the, let's feel this out, let's figure it out. I just wouldn't have had that presence of mind. Yeah, because once she gets deeper in and realizes that the only person who's going to save her is herself, she starts getting honest with herself and starts warming up to the idea of taking action. That did not happen to me done. until I was 24. <laughs> Yeah, right. You say that you would have gotten things done quicker, but you're like, mm. That's true. Yeah, I don't think I started to grow up either, uh, take control of my own life until I was in my 20s. I mean, I, I would have been just hysterical is all I mean before that. But like, mm -hmm. I, I definitely didn't take action and realize that the only person that's going to save me, quote unquote, is myself until I was like mid-20s, hardcore. Yeah. That that didn't dawn on me until then. Mm -hmm. I'm still grappling with that myself as a 31-year-old man. It's wild. Oh, God. Existentialism. But Molly is still a kid. And like I said, she's goofy and funny and sarcastic, which is really important. It's a really important element for a scary book for kids. Because mm -hmm. um, we see that time and time again yeah. in the works of D.J. McHale and R.L. Stein. Gotta have some humor. Yeah. And not, not only Gotta in kids' Gotta have some humor or kids won't listen. Kids won't watch. They won't. Yeah. No, but like even adults. I mean, like we talked about like in, in our Goonies series about how there has to be a, a balance of yes. humor. Totally. For the harder times to be more digestible. Mm -hmm. A well-placed moment of silliness can go a very long way toward the ultimate balance of the world you're trying to build within the story. And also in real life. I was about to say in life too. <laughs> Yeah. And one of the uh, examples I wanted to read of the realism of her character comes in later when she's speaking with a school counselor about kind of what home life is like. And she knows that this person's not going to listen to her. It's another adult that will not listen. Mm -hmm. But she says, I know what I want to say. I want to say that I see him looking at me out of the corner of his eye in a way that makes chills go down my, my back. Even when I'm walking down the hall and going into my room, I feel like I'm still being looked at. Mm. It's as if eyes are watching me wherever I go in his house. I want to tell her that whenever he comes into a room, the air gets colder. Whenever I know he's thinking about me, I have the feeling like someone is walking over my grave. Mm. I want to say that he's not really a human being. He, he is something else. I don't know what. He's fattening me up. But if I say that, they'll suspect I'm nuts. Mm. I want to tell them about my dreams but I know that if I tell Miss Rudder my dreams are warning me about the danger I'm in, she'll move from mere suspicion to absolute certainty that I'm lying. Mm. So she's like, I can't even tell the truth because these adults will just write me off. Yeah. So That's such a hard, That's that sucks. It's pretty smart. <laughs> that sucks. And for kids to read that and kind of go, I know that feeling. Yeah. So mm. it's kind of like what you're asking earlier, like, do these stories make us afraid and depressed or... Do they just validate us? Validate us and make us feel heard and seen. Yeah. It's kind of nice. It's probably that, honestly. Probably. Now I want to discuss the so called great uncle. So, like I said, he has the same pictures in his wallet that were in her dad's wallet. He's this tall, skeletal old man who won't show his face to her 
and rarely interacts with her. Like when she comes down, he's like, come down to breakfast. He like hides behind the coat rack and like slips around the corner. What the hell? So when she goes into the, to the like sunroom to eat her breakfast, he's passing through the door to like leave the room. Like he won't let her just look at him. Mm. He's got bony, pale hands with long, sharp fingernails. And to hide these, he wears gloves and he wears a wide brimmed hat and dark sunglasses. He's always trying to like conceal his appearance yeah. from everyone, including her. And that tattoo on his ankle, right? Hey, the tattoo <laughs> on the ankle. Well, his tattoo is, I guess, her thinking that his skin has dyed a brown color. That's right, right. What is he okay. wearing? Brown face? Ugh, like, not good cool, grief. skeleton man. Not cool, skeleton man. He's removed all the wall decorations from the house. There are no paintings, no mirrors. He locks her in a room at night. And when she does get the school counselor involved, as well as a child welfare agent, they come to the house to like make sure she's not being abused. He has removed the locks from her door. And she even says he must have replaced the door frame because wow. there's no indication of like screw holes or anything to show that there were locks there at so all. So Olaf. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It's yeah. just like every time that you think that you've got them, you think that you have a valid, mm -hmm. okay, I have somebody that's going to help me. I can show them this undeniable proof yep. that this person is a bad person yep. and they always just kind of slip out of it. Yeah, it's crazy. Horrible. And as soon as they leave, she hears the drill upstairs putting the locks back into place. Oh my God. It was a really, honestly, a very beautiful like moment. If this were to be a film, mm. her sitting there at the like, kitchen table, totally defeated, which yeah. is like the yeah upstairs. Wow. <laughs> That'd be crazy. And ultimately, she realizes that there are actually security cameras and he has CCTV footage no. in his office, um, which she said he's always in his office on his computer. That's what he's doing. He's in watching. There. Yeah. He's Gross. watching. Not again. And it's funny because <laughs> we just discussed the CCTV footage. Yeah, we literally just did. <laughs> Captured Souls episode. Mm -hmm. And every night after he locks her in a room, he sneaks out to the backyard, to the shed that he keeps locked. What's in the shed? She sees him from her window, and that's her whole thing. What's in the shed? Mm -hmm. What's in the box? What's in the box? There's a lot of emphasis on the food that he feeds her. He gives her a, a lot of food every time she comes home, every time she wakes up and goes to school. Fattening her up, like she said. Exactly. Hansel and Gretel. It's all for the sole purpose of fattening her up mm. while he himself does not eat. There's never any food for him. Well, we know that he's a vampire. <laughs> or, yeah, whatever he is. He's a ghoul, <laughs> I guess. But she's not, yeah. not technically a ghoul, but... I mean, he's not technically he's a, a vampire. I'm just saying. If if there's a person that you never see them eat, you have to assume they're You they're know they're a, a monster of some kind, right? They only yeah. eat specific things. Their diet's very particular. He's always like looking at her and telling her, she's looking thin. Mm. You're looking thin. You should eat something. Which is not okay anyway. No, especially for a grown man to tell a young woman. Nope. I mean, anyone to tell a young woman. Being a young woman who was told that by every <laughs> every adult human that I ever interacted with for my entire life. You're looking thin. Not okay. I did not have happen to have an eating disorder, but if I had, it would have made it worse. God, right? Any commentary on appearance is just not okay. Mm -hmm. Don't comment on what's on my plate. Don't comment on what's on anybody else's plate. Exactly. Oh my God. It gave me a real icky feeling. When, yeah, I could, I could yeah, jump on some soapboxes about that. And she says, if I ate everything he gave me, I'd get as fat as a butterball turkey. <laughs> <laughs> the main big thing here to do with the food, she's convinced that he puts drugs in her food. Mm. He's convinced that he's drugging her because the first night that he brought her home and he set her down at a table and had a plate of food, she was really hungry. 
She hadn't eaten much in days. So she ate the food, right? Without question. Mm -hmm. And she says, I started having a headache and my heart was racing and I felt like some kind of zombie. When I went to bed that night, I just conked out. I didn't even dream. Mm -hmm. And I will say here that it's incredibly important that she be able to dream Mm -hmm. because what ends up happening is she has dreams that are sort of a retelling of the skeleton man's story that she herself is living. And so you have the uncle, you have her, and you have the rabbit. Mm -hmm. And so she needs to dream because when she saves the rabbit's life in her dreams, the rabbit vows to help save her, Mm -hmm. to show her what she needs to be shown. It's just really nice because it's like this weird way, like, He knows because he's this weird ancient thing. He knows that her dreams can save her. Yeah, I was going to say, he's trying to prevent her from dreaming. Exactly. Sleeping pills. He has to give her something. Sleeping medication. That he knows will just knock her out and keep her from dreaming. Wow. And he thinks that she's eating the food, but, you know, she does away with it. Mm -hmm. She never eats the food. She always throws it away. Smart girl. And this brings us to Miss Shabbos. Okay. Her sixth grade teacher. Yes, teacher. Very important woman. The joking name is that she's also known as Miss Showbiz, Shabbos Showbiz, Mm -hmm. because she sings show tunes to the class. Yeah. Um, She's me. (laughs) Yeah, right? She's super quirky, eccentric, and she rouses her class with show tunes. Uh, She reminded me specifically of a teacher I once had. She was my music teacher a couple different years at uh, my school. Her name was Miss Vaughn, and she would sing... A bunch of songs all the time, the way that Miss Shabbos is described. She would just sing songs to her class. Miss Vaughn would sing to us. And I specifically remember, what's the main song from Rent? Seasons of Love. Seasons of Love. (laughs) Uh, And then Phantom of the Opera. Like she made us watch Phantom of the Opera. Mm -hmm. We we couldn't watch Rent at my school because we were a Christian school. But I like that she sang it though. Anyway, so she reminded me of Miss Vaughn. And she's this ideal teacher kind of character. You know, she has fun with her class, but she takes Molly's situation to heart. Mm-hmm. Like when Molly's parents first disappear, Miss Shabbos is offering to let Molly stay with her. Oh, stay with her. Yeah. She doesn't get to because she has no say. Right. She'll speak with Molly in private about what's going on at home. And she turns out to be one hell of a listener. She just hears Molly out mm. and thanks her when Molly opens up and talks to her. We need teachers, folks. Yep. We need teachers like this. Pay teachers more. What they're dealing with right now. Exactly. They deserve so much better. And she lets Molly know that she's available and gives her like her home and cell phone numbers and says like, call me anytime. Mm-hmm. And so when that leads to Molly feeling comfortable opening up to her, she's able to tell her what's really going on. And Miss Shabbos is able to take action and force other adults to listen to Molly, you know, to take her seriously in a way that they might not have really listened to her if she'd just gone straight to these other adults. So... What's cool about her is... She's an advocate. She's an advocate for her. She listens to her. And once Molly does tell her what's going on, she doesn't take away Molly's autonomy and doesn't force her into doing anything she's not comfortable with doing. But like, because well, I'll say this. If she had forced Molly into talking to her the way parents tend to do in an overbearing way or other adults, Mm -hmm. Molly could be uncomfortable, backtrack, not tell her what's going on because she feels, again, like... Talking about it makes it real, makes it scarier than it needs to be. And if an adult is coming at you with like, 
hey, something's wrong. You need to talk to me about this. Mm -hmm. You can shut down. It's such a fine line because obviously, like, you want to protect the child. (laughs) And in a real life situation, it could really be like life or death. It could be, you know, something really terrible. So it's like, it's such a fine line to gain trust without, you know, Mm -hmm. putting the child in more danger, basically. Absolutely. That's tough. So more than anything, Mishabas is a hero. Ultimately, Molly saves herself, but like the rabbit in the dream, Mishabas helps provide Molly with what she needs to help herself. Like the rabbit is more of a direct um, assistant mm-hmm. because the rabbit is Molly. The spirit guide is the spirit inside of you. Like it, it's just a manifestation of yourself. Right. Um, also because in your dreams, everything you dream is you. I was going to say it's a dream too. But Mishabas is an indirect assistant because she can only assist Molly, not save her. Like, she can't actually save her. Right. So, Shabbos is this beautiful example of what an adult, a parent, a teacher, a mentor, etc., should be for a child, because you can only give a child the tools they need to succeed. You can't do it for them. And you can't tell them how to find success. Mm -hmm. So, it's a nice allegory. Thanks, Miss Shabbos. Showbiz. Showbiz. And now, to get into the Native American heritage. Yes. And imagery. I'm ready. One of the most impressive things Joseph Bruchak does is how he introduces Molly's heritage to the reader. It's very important to Bruchak to break stereotypes in children's literature, Mm -hmm. which is important work anyway. Yes. And he had to know, writing this, making it his life's work to write this kind of stuff based off of Native American uh, stories and heritage and history, very few readers of the story would ever be familiar or comfortable with an authentically Native American main character. Mm -hmm. But how he handled this was super effective. There's an interview he did with someone named Klaus von Zastro for a Read Across America series. Yeah. And this interview was motivating young readers, an interview with famed children's book author, Joseph Bruchak. And this is a quote from the interview from Joseph Bruchak. I think that we are facing some of the same problems we've been facing for the last few hundred years. That stereotypes of American Indians that existed in the time of Fenimore Cooper still keep turning up. I find it a kind of cultural blindness that exists towards American Indian cultures on the part of the majority culture. And it is evident still within children's literature. Mm-hmm. I find myself still going into schools and having to help kids unlearn the stereotypes that are still being presented to them in books and in classrooms. Mm -hmm. And I find it important in my writing to try to present images of Native children that are both accurate and positive. I don't mean going so far in the other direction that I exaggerate the positive. I intend to be realistic. But on the other hand, I want people to recognize human beings as human beings first, whatever their background may be. Mm -hmm. And that's what he does in the story. Because little by little, he begins to introduce the fact that Molly is Native American. Mm -hmm. Mohawk. Not quite the status quo of most American children at the time. It's a gradual reveal. Yes. So you already relate to her by the time you know that she's Native American. He doesn't throw it in your face. It's kind of unfortunate that it has to be done that way, almost. Like, I mean, it just, it sucks. Oh, totally. But I do appreciate that he's just giving 
the he's the person is a person. Mm-hmm. The person is relatable for the reasons that she's relatable to the reader. And then by, before you even know it, you've put yourself in somebody else's shoes, Absolutely. which is what reading's all about in the first place. Absolutely. Well, it's just good writing because, I mean, the first rule of storytelling, well, writing, not storytelling really, but is show, don't tell. Yeah. You want to introduce concepts and atmosphere and feelings without telling them, right. not I'm a Native American child. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Over explaining your exposition. But that goes for anything. Yeah. Films too, by the way. <laughs> Film too. Anything. You want to be very subtle and clever and let the audience draw their own conclusions without having to specifically tell them something. Right. And that's just good writing. Yeah. So as far as agendas go, I'd say this is a very positive one. Yes. So some of the notable Native American references in this story are the most obvious being the skeleton monster story that she tells very early on. Mm -hmm. And she says it's the story passed down that her father heard on the Mohawk Reserve. Mm -hmm. One of the next things she talks about is the something that she calls the lonesome song Mm -hmm. that you sing when you're feeling lonely and need a friend. So she sings this when her parents are missing in those first few days. Mm, Break my heart. She says that if there's a friend that hears you, they will sing it back to you. Mm. And you'll know that you're not alone. It's like an echo. Kind of, yeah. But she says even though she didn't hear anything, it helped her feel less alone and it helped her fall asleep. Mm. Wow. There's a scene where there's a big storm when she's in her so-called uncle's home. And there's thunder and lightning. And she recalls how her dad told her that thunder is the rumbling steps of the Hinos, the thunder beings, who live in the sky. They're good guys who throw down lightning like spears to destroy monsters. Nice. I feel like I've seen that. Like, my mind is giving me, like, a cartoon of clouds throwing down lightning bolts like spears. Oh, um, it's making me think of... The uh, it almost in my head it almost looks like Schoolhouse Rock style, but I don't. Think I was it gonna say rock. it's not. I'm thinking of like Heat Miser and Snow Miser. Yeah, it's probably it's from probably the one of Christmas. Those, yeah. yeah, that would make sense. Because I guess it'd be Snow Miser throwing down. Did he do lightning bolts? I don't know, but I can see a cloud throwing lightning bolts. <sighs> Something like that. We're I don't stealing know. appropriation. We're stealing it right away. <laughs> well, I'm sure that's existed in many cultures, not just. <laughs> Probably. Native American. So Unless we they're like, we're the he we knows. Yeah, I was going to say, the he knows. We're the he knows. But like, that's the kind of like OCD justification. Like you're a kid, you're lying in bed and you're trying to sleep and there's lightning. You're like, okay, well, it's just the lightning. It's just, you know. They're getting rid of the monsters. They're killing all the monsters out there. Yeah. All the scary, scary monsters. It's like, it's a nice comfort you tell yourself. That is a comfort. Yeah. Because storms, you know, used to scare me. I would justify things like that all the time. With my own fictions. We used to say it was the angels bowling. The angels bowling? That's the thunder? Yeah. (laughs) That's cool. That's cool. (laughs) We didn't actually believe it, but we did say it. Yeah. Mm. In the second half of the story, when Molly begins to get brave enough to sneak around the house and like figure things out, she walks in the way her dad taught her to walk like their Mohawk ancestors did when they wanted to move through the forest without making any noise. That was super cool. Mm -hmm. She describes it as like keeping your elbows close and your hands out and you twist your feet when you walk. Mm -hmm. So like you don't step, but you like twist into the earth as you're walking. Pretty cool. Out in the woods and the brush. And like I said before, she has these dreams that involve this uh, uncle creature and the talking rabbit. This is very Native American to have a spirit guide in your dream sequences Mm -hmm. um, when you're sleeping 
and have a dream storyline that parallels the story in quote unquote reality Mm -hmm. of the main character. I've read a a few Native American novels written by Native American authors. I took a course in college. It's very cool. And there was a lot of emphasis on dreams Mm -hmm. and dream characters and spirit guides and all that. It's Mm -hmm. really, really cool. uh, Animism. Animism. Native, Amer- Native American animism. When, like, everything has a spirit, the tree, it, you know, like, uh, it's an atrocity. I know, I know, but Disney's Pocahontas, which <laughs> I loved as a child, and I understand that it was completely wrong yes. in all the ways. Joseph um, Bruchak has a book called Pocahontas. Oh, I need to read his. It's the story of Pocahontas, the, the true one. The real one. The real I one. I need to read his, but, uh, yeah. you know, the every... Rocking tree and creature has a life, has a spirit, has a name. Mm-hmm. All that is animism. I wrote a paper on that in college. No, I, I think there's a lot to that. There's more to it, as we discussed in the captured souls with the um aura photography. Yes, yeah. With how that's true. everything oh, has a true. life Man. force behind it, tying it back in, and you can take pictures of it, and you'll see the the, the biology, the chemistry. Yeah, it the all biology. is electromagnetic, kind of sort. We're of. all the same thing. We're all carbon based. All right. <laughs> Lots of water. Lots of water. Well, some people more than others. But. <laughs> Buzz hollers. Mm, I hear him. How? So like I said, the dream that she keeps having is an updated version of the old skeleton man story. Uh, it's better suited to her current situation. She lives in a dark cave with a frightening figure that's hunched in the corner and won't show her his face. And he keeps sending her out to check the snares to see what they've caught for food. Mm-hmm. And she's wearing deerskin clothing and moccasins and a rawhide bracelet, which she says Mohawk children would wear to make sure they woke up safely from their dreams. Mm. It's clearly meant to represent a time from hundreds of years ago that directly parallels her current reality. Mm-hmm. And the uncle in the dream, this hunched figure, continuously like f- grabs her arm and feels her arm to see if she's growing fat or if she's still thin. And he continually tells her over and over, you must eat and grow fat. Mm-mm. Super spooky phrasing. Eat and grow fat. Yes. Yeah, stop it, dude. I know. And in her dreams, she chooses to save the rabbit's life and the rabbit helps her. The rabbit says, now I will tell you what you must know. The one you think is your uncle is not human. Super well, spooky. Well, I didn't think of him as my uncle. I was not convinced, so... <laughs> Yeah, but not human. (laughs) And she says at one point, trust your dreams. Both my parents said that. That's our old way, our Mohawk way, the way of our ancestors. Mm -hmm. Trust the little voice that speaks to you. That is your heart speaking. Mm -hmm. So a lot of Native American like folklore and logic and just uh, history there. That's really, really nice. Tradition. Tradition. That's the right word. (laughs) And It just further proves the point that the rabbit is her. Right. It's your heart. It's your spirit. It's your soul. It's whatever. Jiminy Cricket. It's you. And at different times talking about dreams, she mentions something called an aware dream, which is what her her dad calls it, an Mm. aware dream. Like, Like you know it's a dream. Yes. And he says, it's a dream where you know you are a dreamer, and if you are alert enough, you'll get some help from your dreams. Someone or something will guide you or give you a message. This is also known in pop culture as a lucid dream. Mm-hmm. Have you had much experience with lucid dreaming? No. <laughs> I 
I try. A lot of times I will, like, in the dream, I'll know that it's a dream. I'll be aware of it, but I don't really change right. the outcome or my, like... It's difficult. Yeah. Now, I've tried it here and there, but not for a long time and for a good reason. Um, from my personal experience, lucid dreaming is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> There's a lot out there about lucid dreaming. Yeah. Um, and it's it takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of practice and, you know, some... People will tell you that it's an avenue toward achieving astral projection. Yeah. But I'm not going to get into all that this evening. Mm -hmm. My personal experience was terrifying. Yeah. I practiced it pretty consistently back in college. Early college, you know, we're all experimenting with new things. Right. <laughs> My drug of choice was dreaming. <laughs> Um, sleep was elusive. It still is. Yeah, that's kind of my thing with it. Like, I nev I've never tried really hard. Like, there have definitely been times when I'm like, I wish I could dream this, or I wish I could dream about that, or like, mm -hmm. I wish that my subconscious would work on this issue for me. It's tough. You know, and sometimes I find that I dream about the things that I think about. But yeah, like I said, if I'm aware that I'm dreaming, it's not enough to like change what's happening. Usually, if I'm aware that I'm dreaming, it means I'm pretty close to waking up, and then I do wake up. Yeah. Yeah, then you wake up pretty it's, instantly. It, it's very tenuous. Mm -hmm. Is that the word? Sure. I think that's the word. We'll say yeah. Tenuous. <laughs> Words are made up. <laughs> so, yeah, I had my own skeleton man experience in a dream. It confronted me. Did I ever tell you about this? The skeleton man? Mm-hmm. No. Or just a figure in my dream talking to me? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, okay, so very quickly, I had this dream... When I was in college, I was trying, I was actively trying to lucid dream every time I dreamt, trying to bridge my conscious brain with my subconscious brain mm -hmm. or the unconscious, whichever it is. I need rest too much. <laughs> well, that too. It, it's actually exhausting. Yeah. But I walked into my parents' living room and I saw the room. It was very weird because I was aware it was a dream. Things that were, it was very dark. And there, when I turned the corner, there was this skeletal thing standing Ugh. in the middle of the room. No. And it walked up to me like this with his hand Ew. covering his face. He's covering, yeah. His, his hand was all bone and behind it was a skull. Wow. And The Grim Reaper. Kind of, yeah. And he walked up to me and I couldn't see his face, but he was very close to me, like a foot from me. And I don't remember the exact phrasing, but he said, If you ever try this again, I'll... Make you regret it. Ew. Do you know what, though? That is nuts, first of all. Yeah. Like, no thank you. Having gone through the journey that we've gone through, I've gone through, like, in the last few years with, like, deconstruction and all this stuff, mm -hmm. do you think maybe that was some weird, deep part of your subconscious that's just been so taught? Like, because not to say my parents would be like, oh, lucid dreaming is bad, but, like, in general, evangelical Christianity kind of steers you away from any type of anything that helps you to trust your own intuition, be it lucid dreaming, be it therapy <laughs> right. in some circumstances. So do you think maybe it was like a deep-seated fear of going that deep into yourself? Very possible. Because I can see that being true for me years ago. It was either exactly that or... You access something. Yeah. Or other dream lore is true and you can access things that are not of yourself. Right. And there was something actually there threatening me. Right. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I, I, don't know. I, I can't say which it was, but that's just a... I'm not an expert on dreams. Question. But it was super spooky. Were we, were we just... So recently we got together for Christian's birthday with some of our friends, his friends, mm -hmm. and we were having this conversation with our friend Luke. 
about like how well do you know yourself really kind of thing and how much of yourself can you actually not know like I think Luke asked the question what percentage of yourself would you say that you know so we were just like at different points in our life like do you feel like you know yourself better now than you knew yourself when you were you know in high school or whatever yeah and what percentage and then but the ultimate answer obviously is that you can't know what you don't know so right no one can ever really have an accurate answer to that question but I certainly know more about myself than I did back in high school. <laughs> you only know how much more you know than you used to. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. That's the only measure. It's like trying to measure. I read an article today, <laughs> sidebar, about measuring uh, the rate of expansion of the universe. Yeah. And I was like, how do you even begin to know that? <laughs> and they're like, this is how much the universe expands per second. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of the same thing. It's just as... You can only know things relative to other things. Because it's all... Yeah, it's all compared to what's already been grown. Right. You don't know beyond that. Anyway, sorry. Crazy. No, it's wild. It's wild. If anybody else has Skeleton Man experiences in their dreams, I want to hear about it. Yeah. Have you guys seen a Skeleton Man? Anybody. Or a rabbit? Anybody. But I did talk to a guy at a party once and he was like, you should have uh, kept going. Yeah. You know, bulldozed just past that know, guy yeah. and kept going. Mm. That's wild. Maybe one day I'll revisit that dream. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Go find that man. Find that skeleton man. Ask him to tell you the secrets of the universe. That'd be cool. That'd be really Maybe cool. Maybe he's my spirit animal. Maybe he was. A skeleton. And he was he was only trying to scare you, puff up and be big, and scare you because, you know, he was nervous. He just made a bone. He's nothing. Yeah, he, he's nervous. Don't don't come back here or or <laughs> <laughs> hiding behind his hands. <laughs> yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick you real hard. I'm going to get you. <laughs> my bony toes. <laughs> Speaking of skeleton people, <laughs> it's a segue. Speaking of transition, I had one more quote from this interview, the Read Across America interview he did. He was talking about how Skeleton Man is great for reluctant readers. Um, stories like this one and like another one that he mentioned of his own are really good for kids that hate to read because they're exciting and they're useful. I was one of those kids who was a reluctant reader. I hated to read. Crazy, because I loved to read. And it's wild that I love to read now, and I want to write. Wow. Because I hated it so much. Like, I remember just throwing fits because I had to read for school. No, no. I would throw fits about math and, like, multiplication tables. Oh, but same. you couldn't keep me away from a bookshelf. I didn't want to read or do math. I don't, I don't know what's wrong with me. But, you know, I was like I said, I was one of those kids, and... That's why I was drawn to things like Goosebumps and Harry Potter because- Series of unfortunate events as well. Series of unfortunate because events. Because it's that suspense that keeps pulling you in. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you forget that suspense. you're having to do the chore of reading because you right. care about the story. Right. Because they're scary and they're magical and exciting and they're informative. Like they reveal secrets about the world that only like you and the characters know. Like you feel like you're learning secret things. Just- mm -hmm you know, really cool. So Joseph Bruchak is, in, is inspiring to me because those are the kinds of stories I want to write that will inspire a love for reading in kids who hate reading. Mm -hmm. Some reverse psychology in the case of Daniel Handler. Kind of. Yeah. You kind of trick them into reading. Yeah. And this story in particular, Skeleton Man, is he says they're useful, which I think is an interesting way because it's not like he's saying, well, there's a moral. You can learn a lesson. Mm -hmm. He's saying, no, this is useful for children. It's not about learning something that benefits the world per se. It's benefiting the reader. Mm -hmm. It's kind of an Ayn Rand, uh, Atlas Shrugged <laughs> approach to like, no, this is these need to be informative, useful stories. And he says that that's kind of a key element in the tradition of native stories is they say that their stories have to be interesting 
and useful. It should be a tool in your tool belt, so to speak. Exactly. And I think I think reading works that way in general, though. You're always getting an experience that you wouldn't have yeah. otherwise, and that's expanding your horizons, even if it's not teaching you a skill necessarily. But things like this, they're teaching you to listen to yourself. <laughs> listen yes. Listen to your, you know, also listen to your ancestry and the instincts draw are from that. Huge. Yeah. That's a, those are major themes in this story. And I wrote down a few takeaways and lessons learned as I, I categorized it in my notes. I would say that this story teaches kids to speak up and talk to adults that they trust when things don't feel right, especially important for people who experience like really difficult or traumatic things. Yep. And they feel like they can't tell anybody about it. Yep. Because that's a, that's a major problem. Major problem people feeling like even if they did speak up one either no one will listen to them or it could ruin their i don't know relationships their careers their yes. whatever yep. people are so afraid to speak up totally that they just don't totally i you know i have so many feelings so many feelings about this and okay you guys i <laughs> very relevant a little bit sidebar I have been trying since it came out, which it came out at the beginning of the month, to get Christian to watch this new documentary that came out about Spring Awakening. Oh, my God. Which is this, but it's that entire theme. Yeah. It is speaking out, speaking up, talking about it, making things known, creating space for things that are always pushed under a rug or dismissed or, you know, when the adults aren't paying attention, the devastating consequences when adults don't listen to children, don't listen to their plight, don't listen to where they are in life and what that can do. Right. And by the same token, when they created Spring Awakening, it was also it gave hope and it was a beacon to kids who had ex had experiences like this. And they would write letters to the cast. Mm detailing their experiences they had never shared with anybody wow so it was giving a space to talk where there was none before for a lot of people but unfortunately these abuses and these you know experiences that are these these traumas are far too common yep. and creating that space with art is invaluable just absolutely invaluable totally. creating the space to um you know talk about that trauma but also the example of what will happen if you don't wow just as important. Yeah. Go watch it, y'all. And read Skeleton Man. Yeah, that too. <laughs> because it also teaches kids, and in this case, girls, that they can rescue themselves Amen. if they choose to be brave despite their fear. You might be afraid, but that doesn't mean you can't do what needs to be done. And you don't need to be rescued because you already have what it takes inside of yourself yeah. to rescue yourself and possibly even save others in the process. Man. All of these things tie together so well. Don't they? They just do. <laughs> yeah. Look forward to Fern Gully next week, y'all. We're going to go even deeper into these themes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you yes. like this, there is more where that came from. And like you were saying, Molly's like heritage and her instincts, right? It's You have to learn the ways of your people. Yes. In order to save herself, she must trust and embrace this and listen to the inner voice inside of her. If something feels wrong, it probably is. Worst case, you overreacted. Big deal. Right. But- Molly covers that in the first two pages. Maybe I'm being melodramatic, mm -hmm. but at least I'd be safe if that were true. Exactly. You know? I feel that way. I'd rather overreact than underreact. Mm -hmm. Me too. Especially if I've got a creepy skeleton man uh, <laughs> locking me in my room every night. Whose appearance changes like with the day, basically. The vomitus. And most importantly, if you put your mind to it, you can outwit the bad guys. The monster might be 
big and scary and skeletal, <laughs> but you can be resourceful and cunning if you want to be and if you need to be. Like a very common thing I've heard over and over again in true crime podcast scenarios and documentaries and movies and such that we've discussed before mm-hmm. is that if you fight for your life, you have a really good chance of getting away. Yeah. Like your your chances increase exponentially. If you make it, that was always the, like in self-defense classes and stuff, that was kind of the takeaway for a lot of it was don't give up. Don't give up. Don't make it easy. No. Because if, if it's difficult, they, there is a greater likelihood that they will give up. Absolutely. Because they don't expect you to. Right. Fight back. These human monsters, a lot of the time, are so narrow-minded and like narrow-sighted that they don't even expect you to fight back at all. They think that they are so good at what they're going to do. All powerful. They get arrogant and overconfident, and that can be their downfall. I mean, obviously not every time. And definitely not victim blaming by any means. No, of course not. There are certainly cases where it's totally not a possibility. But This is, <laughs> this is victim empowering. Right. Like you're allowed to fight back. You're, uh, uh, yes, <laughs> totally allowed to fight back. And you should, if anybody thinks that they have any I kind mean, of power. I mean, some people have that. the freeze response, you know, like fight or flight, freeze. Yeah. Kind of thing. I don't know what I would do in that circumstance. I really don't. I don't know. But I hope I'd fight. And if you don't fight back, though, you will always lose. And if you do fight back, you do stand a really good chance yeah. of saving your own life. True. So Molly teaches us some very important lessons. Thanks, Molly. Thanks, Molly. Thanks, Joseph. Thanks, Joseph Bruchak. <laughs> Thanks, Big Joe. <laughs> All right. So some closing remarks. I was really going to deliver better ones than I have. Um, <laughs> we haven't even heard them yet. Don't sell yourself short. No, I know. I know. But, you know, I think he just kind of says everything he needs to say for himself. Really, really cool guy. He's inspiring. And I want to read a lot more of his works than I have. This is just the first of many. And I'm kind of glad it was the first because it's really uh, a gateway. Opened my eyes to a lot of really beautiful things, a lot of scary things too. But I will say, Joseph Bruchak, a Native American writer, wrote a scary story for children that is rife with Native American legend and symbolism, as well as a Native American main character. And not only did it slip into the mainstream for a while, but it is now beloved by an entire generation of readers. And I think that's super freaking cool. Agreed. I wish that I'd read it as a kid. You will. You'll read it soon. Mm-hmm. you read it soon. So thank you, Joseph Bruchak, for your contribution to not only children's literature, but American literature on the whole. And uh, the best news I have for everybody at this current moment, including myself, is that there's a sequel to Skeleton Man. Amazing. Called The Return of Skeleton well, Man. Well, that's not good news at all. <laughs> we don't I want know. him to return. I can't wait to read it because there's not a trilogy. So it probably means that okay. he, gets his, uh, he gets what's coming to him. I was about to say. Yeah. He gets what's coming. He gets what's coming. Come up and Gets his comeuppance. You ever heard anybody use that seriously? Comeuppance. You're gonna get your comeuppance, man. Yeah, yeah. Like what? It, it wouldn't work <laughs> hey, in life. You mess with me. You're gonna get your comeuppance. <laughs> My point exactly. I'll refrain from more jokes. <laughs> but yeah, that's the skeleton man. Yay! By Joseph Bruchak. Thanks, Christian. I won't tell you what happens. Don't tell us. Please don't tell us. We want to find out for ourselves. So thanks for hanging out with us and listening. As always. Mm-hmm. Totally. We're here for you. Talk to us. Tell us things. Did you read The Skeleton Man when you were a kid? Let us know. Please tell us. Let us know what kind of dreams you've had. If anybody's had any uh, super revealing, informative dreams. Any experience with spirit guides or anything like that? Yeah, tell us all those things. Totally need to know. Well, I'm going to go eat dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, dinner time. It's dinner time. It's late at (laughs) night, but it's dinner time. So hungry, I'm going to cook up some 
fingers. No, no, oh God. See how tasty oh, no. these are. Mmm, that's good. Are you the skeleton man? Not yet. But you're gonna be if you don't eat dinner. <laughs> yeah, maybe one day. Okay, bye guys. Sorry, we're really <laughs> hungry. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so sorry. All right, where's that rabbit? Yeah, you tell me if you find him. I'll let you know. <laughs> I'll let you know. All right, sweet. Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to That's Pretty Dark, written and produced by Christian Baxter Mott and Kaylin Andrews. Our music is composed by Jonathan Simmons, and our art is provided by Paige Garland at Power Girl Illustration. Join the collective nostalgia and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at That's Pretty Dark Podcast. Share your experiences and let us know what shows, films, or villains still haunt you from childhood at That's Pretty Dark Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, you're never really alone. So until next time, sweet dreams, everyone.